This episode is in celebration of our holiday giving drive. If you participate in the drive at the supporter level or above, your name will be read in the credits of this podcast for all of 2020. More information about the drive is available through the link in the show notes. I also want to announce that as part of the holiday giving season, we will be having a Cyber Monday sale on December 2nd. Usually we have a holiday sale at the end of the year, and this year we're doing a Cyber Monday sale wherein we will give 40% off rather than the usual 20%. 40% off just for that day. And afterwards, our holiday sale will continue through the end of the year. Uh, if you forget the date or uh, need more information about that, you can always check the store page on our website. Thanks. Welcome to the Jung Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Gather up your brokenness, love, perfection, and human ideals. Part 2. In celebration of our holiday-giving drive, we are unlocking a full seminar by Polly Jung Eisendrath. This is the second half of Gather Up Your Brokenness. The first half was published on November 22nd. So if you haven't listened to that, please go back and listen to that episode before this one. The first stop is the falling in love or the idealization. And then the necessary second stop is disillusionment. Disillusionment is really where true love begins. And many people give up on a relationship when the disillusionment begins because they assume that they've chosen the wrong person. And that's part of the difficulty with the kind of, um, the kind of framework that we have right now in this culture for love. It's very steeped in romance. And people have this feeling that they should have a match and that that match actually should feel like it's got good chemistry, that's right for me. And uh, there's the confusion about it, thinking if you have the right match, you will then have love, that love will develop automatically from choosing the right person. And actually, love is a practice. It's not automatic. And uh, the one automatic thing that you can be sure of is that if you are idealizing, whether it's your new baby, your new lover, sometimes your new house even, you will become disillusioned. That's automatic. And so everything that goes up will come down. And if you make the mistake of thinking you've got the wrong person, then you might move on without ever having really tried. But the key to the divorce issue is that you need to ask yourself, is this a situation in which I can sustain 
myself and be a whole self and love this person, <clears throat> and it's on a two-way street that I'm vulnerable and they're also vulnerable. Uh, the, the other way that it goes, of course, we're going to talk about in a few minutes, which is cherishment, which is love on a one-way street. So, um, But if, for example, you're with somebody and you say, you know, I can no longer tolerate um, her spending habits because she's just, you know, driving me crazy with that. If you really mean that, um, then, you know, you could try certain kinds of things to remain a whole self. You could try separating your bank accounts. You know, ultimately, you could try living in different houses or <laughs> whatever. Uh, but if none of those work, maybe then, if you really can't tolerate it, that's the end for you. So I hope that's clear. Um, so are there questions about anything thus far? Yes. I'll, I will repeat the question. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. asking about, given the Buddhist framework on reality, everything looks so broken and impermanent, why not just let everything slide and kind of go into a nihilism, like this, this is a mess, and so, so um, first of all, that is uh, an issue that comes up in countries that have been Buddhist. I mean, there is, there can be an attitude of kind of, you know, no point in getting involved. But actually, from a Buddhist perspective, uh, the um, engagement with a changing life is actually the path to awakening. And so it's the engagement with things as they arise moment to moment to moment. And from a spiritual perspective, it's a little hard to... um, to explain this, but the the quick answer is that um, we're all Buddhas already, but we just don't know it. And so the world that we observe, we're actually putting too much emphasis on controlling it or predicting it or seeing it a sort of beating our needs, once we're able to keep engaging and let go of that, we begin to sense that, um, that this is a world of love, compassion, and connection, that all of it is perfect the way it is with all of its imperfection. But to get to that awakening, you have to keep engaging with the imperfect world. What I would say happens on the step-by-step path of it, and I believe this is a, an ordinary human thing, um, that when you see the degree to which um, people and other beings are lost and hurt in this world, it naturally opens your heart. 
and there's a natural compassion that comes forth, which is the desire to help. That compassion can be corrupted, it can be used in the wrong way, but if you continue to want to help, you have to get better at helping. As you get better at helping, you start to see these other things. You start to see how many beings here are helping. You start to see that this is a place where many, many beings are engaged in all sorts of ways. But it's not a place of security or stability. It's not a place where you can grab onto things and have it your way. So it's by engaging again and again, and by being, my feeling is that the human infant, when it comes into being, the first gaze is into the face of the mother or the caregiver, and that infant wants that caregiver to do well. That infant wants, if you look at these little videotapes of the babies and the mothers, the baby wants the mother to be engaged, wants the mother to be happy, wants the mother to be vital so the mother can take care of the baby. But so we have a natural response to suffering in wanting it to actually be healed. That's a natural response. But what gets in our way, really, and again, lots to say about this, is that grasping and the control thing, which we could call the ego, uh, not, to, not to say it in a way that diminishes its importance. It's important for navigating the world, the human ego is. But on the, on the side of uh, how human beings respond to this world, uh, how many of you have read this book, Sapiens, by Harari? Just a couple of people. It's, it's a great book, Yuval Harari. It's a bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list. And Harari is looking at the history of Homo sapiens on the Earth. And there were other kinds of humans here, but the sapiens killed them all and, and, and vanquished them. The Homo sapiens, who not only were in certain ways the most violent of the humans, but they were also able to do something that none of the other humans by all the artifacts that we have could do, is that they could talk about each other when that person wasn't present. The other humans could only talk about what was present, but sapiens have this capacity to talk about what is not present. And so with that capacity, they could organize against others uh, when they weren't present, even if they knew their language, the, others, the other humans knew their language. But the book, what it really, really showed me is how violent our species is and how um, difficult it is for us uh, as a species to come to terms with the others in our species and to be able to live in an environment which is non-hierarchical. So um, with the kind of species we are, we tend to feel alienated when we can't control things. And so that sense of alienation that you were talking about, like why do anything? Because nothing's going to go my way. Nothing's going to go the way I think it should go. That's a natural response in Homo sapiens. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So it's like we have a nature that is a very difficult nature, Homo sapiens do. We're able to do a lot of things that other animals are not able to do, but we also have to manage a nature, a nature which is profoundly unconscious and also very violent. So that makes it hard to live in couple relationships. Um, so that's the five minutes.
Are we, are we good to go forward? To, uh, so, because I want to get to the Jungian part and I need to do the love part first, uh, which is, so we talked about true love. True love is reciprocal, mutual. Both people are vulnerable and um, it allows you to see yourself and to see yourself through someone else's eyes. And it's in some ways similar to therapeutic love. Though therapeutic love is love in a one-way street. So the other type of love, and I think it's really worth looking at it and going into it, is what I'm calling cherishment, which is love on a one-way street. So true love is on a two-way street. Cherishment is on a one-way street. True love is mutual and reciprocal. Both people are dependent on it and vulnerable. But it can be confused with cherishment. Love on a one-way street. Cherishing is the term I use for keeping and holding someone dear and cultivating your affection for that person. It's different from mere caregiving in that cherishing has pleasure at its core. We feel pleasure in coming to care for another well and to know deeply his or her needs. Now, as Ed became ill, and I really could not depend on him for any sort of mutuality at all, uh, I still really enjoyed taking care of him. But one reason why I was able to enjoy it and was able to pay such close attention is that I got my needs met elsewhere. So I was on then a one-way street with Ed. We were no longer in this reciprocal true love. And even though other people, when they would see Ed and me, um, they would say, oh, he adores you. He just adores you. He loves you so much because he was always smiling, always so happy to see me. Even when, even with he, when he was with Evelyn, like he'd be in Evelyn's room, and they'd be hugging and kissing, and I would come in and he'd go, oh, Polly, hug me and kiss me, and then Evelyn would hug me and kiss me, and we'd all hugging and kissing each other, and so happy. And um, even in the midst of that, um, you know, he was adoring me, but he was ignoring me. Like, I wasn't really the Polly that I had been for him. I was, as he said to me in maybe the, the last whole thing he said to me about two months before he became completely silent, was, beautiful lady who comes to see me. And so that's what I became to him, although I knew that at another level I was always the person that, that was there from the beginning. I mean, just by the way he died as well. So our relationship became love on a one-way street. Uh, I have many love on a one-way street relationships, as I'm sure you have. Uh, I would say still with my adult children, it's pretty much love on a one-way street. You know, <laughs> They see me a little tiny bit, but mostly when they say, how are you doing, they want me to say, I'm fine. You know, <laughs> They don't want too much with the answer to that. So uh, with our children, it's often on a one-way street. Uh, in therapy, you know, even though our patients know something about us, you don't sit down with your patient and say, wow, my father had borderline personality too. You know, you basically work with that person with love on a one-way street. So cherishment is non-reciprocal love. It's practiced in parent-child relationships, therapeutic relationships, when caring for animals, and practiced when caring for those who are ill or infirm or cannot reciprocate. And even when you're cherishing somebody, you also do need to care for yourself. And um, 
I, I go out and talk to hospice groups, bereavement groups, and so on, and um, I get a lot of questions about this. It's very difficult to, again, speak to these things quickly, but if you resent the care that you're giving, especially to someone who has dementia, they pick it up like that. They're very, very good on picking up resentment. Many people who are ill are, are very good at that. So you want to find a situation, and this may involve putting your beloved person in a care center. In Vermont, we have very good residential care centers. Not a lot of states do. I don't know what Illinois has. But um, a lot of times people think, oh, being at home is better. Being at home is not better if the caregiver is resentful and the patient is alienated, if that person is there by themselves and they're there by themselves most of the time. That becomes depressive for them. And what a care center, a good care center does, it's kind of like a, it's like a um, preschool. It, it's structured. It's set up. There are lots of activities. There are people doing things together. Uh, where I put Ed, there was, a, it was in the country, in the Vermont countryside, uh, 21 residents, 23 staff, um, not, uh, not emphasizing dementia. It was uh, just a general care center, mostly, mostly women. Uh, women are the ones that live very long uh, these days. And um, mostly women who were pretty, pretty with it. And uh, so when they lined up to kiss Ed, they all wanted to kiss him, including the 95-year-old who wanted to put her tongue down his throat. And he objected to that. So um, people do not stop living when they're in a care center. Uh, these residential care centers are actually set up for people to live there, and they do live, and they enjoy their lives, and there are lots of things going on. It's a very different atmosphere than a nursing home. A nursing home or a rehab place is medical, and it is a very difficult uh, setting, generally speaking. Ed had to be in such a place for two months uh, in, at the end of his life because he had to be lifted in a hoist, and they couldn't move him at his care center. So, um, so... Cherishment is non-reciprocal. It also is pleasurable. And if you do it and you don't exhaust yourself, it does not require whole self. By whole self here, I mean the reciprocal nature of whole self or vulnerability. So whole self to whole self means that you depend and you're vulnerable. In cherishment, you actually are giving the love, but you're not vulnerable. There's a great deal of pleasure in cherishing another when we come to know that person as a particular being with strengths, weakness, needs, and character. We feel pride and joy in seeing our beloved thrive. In true love, we're vulnerable and open-hearted and in need of the other person's reflection, desire, and interest. Cherishment, love on a one-way street, is a lot less stressful and touchy than love on a two-way street. You must have seen that in your own life. Many people hide from true love all of their lives, even if they learn to cherish others and are afraid of being known in this intimate way even if they long for it. Notably, some spiritual teachers and masters never make themselves vulnerable to personal love, and idealization of a spiritual teacher guarantees love on a one-way street. And there's a whole bunch you can say about that. Um, and I began to think about this by talking to Cynthia Borgio. She was one of the interviews that I did for... Um, President Hart and her relationship with um, a monk 
brother Raphael, um, showed her, illustrated for her, he was 72 years old when they fell in love, that he had preserved himself all of his life from being vulnerable to personal love. And um, she felt that this actually caused a deficit in him, and she feels that many spiritual teachers have this deficit, and that's one reason why they can be manipulative with sex and romance and idealization, because they're not vulnerable to the reciprocal nature of the witnessing. Um, so that's an important point, and there's a lot to say about that. So uh, I want to skip this site right now, this one, and then come back to it. So in your family, there may be cherishment, but not true love. And this is true in a lot of families. Because true love is demanding, radical, and spiritual, its practice is not widespread. Families can function well without it, and in some cultures, for example, in China and Japan, true love is discouraged, or personal love is discouraged between spouses because it's thought to be wrong to become preoccupied with your spouse. Tomorrow I'll talk more about uh, the issue of personal love, how it got started in the West, and also um, the kinds of demands that it makes on individuals and why it's not welcome in certain cultures because it does involve um, uh, getting personal you know, with a spouse and that can be disruptive to an extended family setup. Um, so personal love is a spiritual practice in the way that I've been talking about it. Uh, you know, I'm going to skip that and go back to the individuation. Sorry, I, this is the first time I put these slides together in the, for this program, and so they're not always exactly in the way I would want them. Uh, so let's talk about Jung for a moment. So we've been talking about love, and we've been talking about reality. And um, where I want to bring individuation into this is the, from the point of view of the way Jung understands the development of consciousness over a lifetime and also the ways in which we're already broken. So from a Jungian perspective, and, and many of you are familiar with Jung, um, there is a kind of wake-up call that comes he would have said in midlife, which he thought was around 36 or so, it can come any time, I think, uh, in adult life after 30. And in that wake-up call, from the perspective we're talking about today, there's some sense in which you're broken, in, in which you are feeling like um, you've had a breakdown, your relationship is breaking up, you aren't the person that you thought, you were going to be, um, and uh, you have a question about whether this is what life is about. Jung called that uh, neurosis, and he said that neurosis, the purpose of neurosis, was basically to wake you up to questions about your own development and your own individuation. So looked at from that perspective, a neurosis is a development. It's developmental. It's not pathological or symptomatic. All of these things that we're saying about the brokenness of life, they can be looked at from a negative perspective or they can be looked at from the perspective of opening up. So from a Jungian perspective, and this is the way that I understand Jung's personality theory, all of us are naturally dissociated, 
discontinuous and hard to manage. But we can begin to be known through what we've transferred, projected, and reacted to in others. So one way to look at a love relationship is that it gives you ample opportunity to project and react to somebody on a continuous basis. And as we'll be talking about it tomorrow, there is a dynamic field that gets set up in couples and in parents and adult children. And that field is activated by what Jung called psychological complexes. And um, complexes really are uh, kind of dynamic reactivity that are fueled by unconscious emotional habits, sometimes completely unconscious images, sometimes semi-conscious images, and they lead to uh, a kind of reactivity in which you do and say things that either you didn't intend or you partly intended or you didn't intend their consequences. So the way I like to think of psychological complexes is that they're kind of like hypnotic states that we all fall into in which we become unconscious of what we're doing and afterwards might rationalize it. But we enact things that can be harmful to ourselves and others. And um, one of these things that we do in relationship that is um, a kind of, um, uh, I would say, like an invitation to figure things out is that we project into another aspects of ourselves that we disavow or that we don't know about. Uh, and um, just as an example, and I wasn't going to go here, but I'm going to go here right now. I'm going to talk about the stuff that gets projected into Donald Trump. Because it gets projected uh, in all sorts of environments where people agree that they don't like Donald Trump. But they'll go on and on about what a bully, how impulsive, how immature, uh, how this, how that. What are they gaining from saying those things? Why are they saying them? Why are they sort of preaching to the choir? Why are people talking about something in an environment where it doesn't make sense, where nobody is really talking about that subject or whatever, where they're kind of downloading aspects of what Jung would call their shadow, of their own impulsivity, of their own lack of virtue, of their own immaturity. And in that moment, they might feel more virtuous. Having downloaded that material, they feel a little more virtuous. Similarly with couples, people will download all sorts of things into a partner that were unnecessary to say. But in that moment, that individual might feel relieved or more virtuous. But at that point, at the point that you've sort of reamed out your partner for the partner's, um, let's say, rudeness and impulsivity. Like somebody told me recently that her husband was driving and he was screaming at another driver. And he was saying, like, I'm going to teach you a lesson and so on. And then they, were, they went to the beach. And then she sat down and she said, you know, I've seen you do that many times. Do you realize how upsetting that is for me? and how much that creates difficulty on the road, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you were trying to teach him a lesson, right? She was doing to him exactly what he was doing. She was teaching him a lesson, and he was teaching them a lesson. But she didn't know she was doing it. 
She thought she was trying to help him. So we do this all the time. And this kind of projection into a partner can actually only be seen and known once we recognize, for one thing, that we might be doing it. As long as you think that this is all for your partner's benefit, you really won't look at what your own reasons are for doing it. So in this state that we exist as human beings, we are rarely conscious. We are conscious from time to time, little islands of consciousness. Oh, I see that, I did that. If we recognize that, we recognize we might need some feedback. Maybe we need feedback from somebody who's around us a lot. Maybe we also, if we're going to give the feedback to somebody else, can do that in a way that is kind. So our personalities are naturally dissociated, discontinuous. On the path of individuation, our reactions to others are a way of coming to know ourselves. In a couple relationship, that's a good resource there. Um, So also on the path of individuation, and this kind of gets away from a couple relationship, but it stays with the theme of... um, of Jung's idea of how unconscious we are, our nighttime dreams and our daytime fantasies often contain the seeds of wisdom that arise from a source that's outside of our ordinary awareness and not under our control. So again, if you recognize that, as I said earlier, if the rug is pulled from out under you, there is another rug, but you can't get to it by imagining what it would be. You can't get to it by thinking it up. Similarly, Um, when you have ideals about how your relationship is meant to be, you're not going to be able to get to those ideals directly. You should watch your dreams. You should watch what happens with your partner. And you may gradually come to understand how to bring the wisdom from your deeper mind into the relationship. But it generally won't be a direct line of control. Like, this is what I think we should do. Uh, we all have some kind of purpose or work in our lives, some kind of contribution that we need to discover by actually trying things out. But this cannot be forecasted from our ideals and our ideas. Um, Earlier when this man was asking me about reality and how you engage with it, this is sort of gets away from the um, couple side of things, but more towards the issue of how to work with reality in your life. If you actually engage with things as they're coming up, as opposed to taking a step back and saying, you know, um, well, let me just give you an example. When people are out looking for a house or they're looking for a partner, they have in mind a certain picture of what they want. But around them, in the context in which they exist, only certain things are available. And if after you've turned all of those things down, you feel sort of alienated, you might begin to wonder, am I not engaging with what is actually arising in my context? And so if you're looking for a partner and you meet 15 people and none of them seems to match anything that you want, you might want to check whether what you have in your mind actually is impossible to match given the age that you are, the place that you live, the situation that you're in. From from a Buddhist point of view, 
the context that you're in is part of you. And so you don't want to ignore it. I would say from a Jungian point of view, the context that you're in is part of you. So you don't want to act like you're separate from it. So that is the same thing in looking for work. You want to engage with what's available. So uh, if, you're, you know, if you're going back to school or you're looking for work that you love, it's a good idea to look in the context you're in and then to find what's there and to recognize that that context is also part of you. And so that doesn't mean that you would never fly to the other side of the world to find something. But in general, I would say as a rule of thumb, I wouldn't fly to the other side of the world. I would stay within my context to keep looking because that's where I'm developing. That's where I'm actually at home. So ultimately on the path of individuation, we're responsible for our actions and our words even though we cannot always control them or the feelings that accompany them. So what we come around to in terms of individuation and where I think it comes back into couple relationship is that even though we don't control things, we don't control the outcome of what it is we say. Like if we say, for example, um, I, I will commit myself to you and I will stay with you for the rest of my life. Maybe that won't be true in the long run, but we've made the commitment through our speech and we're responsible for that. We do our best to do it, but we don't control how it turns out. So the things that we say and the things, the actions we take, we are responsible for even though we don't control the outcome. So um, these are just kind of four insights on the path of individuation. Originally, uh, when I was talking about gather up your brokenness, I was trying to pull together Jung's idea of individuation with the notion of true love, that there is a way that it comes through in a relationship over time that your partner can become your partner in individuation, as Jung actually said in his 1925 essay, which I'll talk about tomorrow, uh, on marriage as a psychological relationship, basically saying that in the kind of marriage relationships that we form now, it is possible to become partners in individuation. I would say it's also possible that you don't become partners in individuation. It's not a guarantee, but it's a possibility. So um, are there questions about this individuation thing I realized kind of dropped into a conversation about love and it it didn't fit oh so well, but uh, in some ways... Are there questions about this idea of individuation uh, or about how it fits with a neurosis? Yeah. I the way the way that I see it is really particularly in number four, that that insight that you're responsible for your actions and your speech. So you're always in a context. You're always embedded in a context. When you're acting and speaking, that context carries reverberations outwards, but it carries reverberations back to you as well. So you're responsible for the way you act and the way you speak. However, you don't have control over how things will take place in the end. And um, the issue of the difference between responsibility and control 
I think is a lifelong investigation and a deep spiritual issue. And different religions look at it in different ways. But certainly, the, in the Buddha's teaching about anatta, basically what he, what he says is that uh, you are contextualized always in a stream of karma that has to do with many lifetimes that have preceded you. And so that stream is where you're traveling. That's what that context is. And so at any moment, the way that you act and the way that you speak can have reverberations that you don't know about, and it also can be driven by lifetimes, or you even have opportunities from lifetimes that you know nothing about. So that it's very, very important to be sensitive constantly to the context that you're in. So that's really the larger teaching around that. So there's another term that's used in Buddhism, which is called dependent arising, which is also another way of talking about anatta, that everything arises from causes and conditions. And those causes and conditions are traveling along with you as this kind of stream that you're in. Okay? Okay. Um, we are going to just finish up here in a minute. So um, now we can talk about personal love as a spiritual practice. So many people actually do uh, make the distinction between personal love and transcendent love. And I am asking that we stop making that distinction. I'm, I'm asking us to look at the practice of personal love as a spiritual practice that allows us to develop particularly mindfulness and compassion with our beloved and with ourselves. And it also allows us to see that we don't know ourselves in the ways that we think we do. Certainly when you go to therapy, when you go to an analytic therapy, you come to see that you don't know yourself in the way that you thought you did. But in a, uh, in a love relationship that exists over time, if you want to engage in this kind of personal love as spiritual practice, you really need to be open to the way that your partner sees you. And you need to investigate it and reflect on it. Um, and you also need to be aware of the powerfulness of the mirror that you hold up. Years ago, Ed and I saw a couple where the man was a, um, a cardiologist and his wife was a social worker. And uh, they were really um, kind of um, on their last legs of the relationship. They were spending very little time together, hadn't had sex in a couple of years. And um, the woman had the impression that, the, that her husband um, just didn't want to be around her, that he, that he didn't love her anymore and that he wasn't interested in anything she was interested in because he spent so much time at work. He spent a lot of time at the hospital. He spent a lot of time at his office. As we went into dialogue therapy with him, it became clear that the man was having the impression that any time that he came home and that he was sitting down with his wife, she had complaints about him. The mirror that she was holding up to him was a negative mirror, and he felt it was pretty much always... She was, she was saying, you haven't done this, you don't do that, you're not good at this, and so on. But when he went to his office, and he worked as a cardiologist, 
many people were very grateful. They were very happy to see him. They were glad that he had done the work for them that they needed. And so they expressed uh, gratitude and appreciation for him. And so he pretty much said straight out, when I come home, I look into your eyes and I see this negative image of myself. When I go to work and I look into other people's eyes, I see a positive image of myself. I thought that was a really important teaching. Um, and of course, it wasn't just a one-way street there because it was reciprocal and it was repetitive and both people were contributing to it. But just recognizing that you hold up a mirror and that your partner, what is your partner seeing in that mirror? And also, what are you seeing in your partner's eyes? So recognizing you really do not know yourself and you need, you need a mirror to see yourself. And of course, you can get that in psychotherapy and sometimes you can get that from good friends as well. But with a partner or a spouse, they're around in your context a lot more than almost anybody else is. And so that they get to be, they get to see you more. Seeing and accepting your beloved allows you to find yourself through trusting another to reflect you back. So it becomes reciprocal. Again, if you can see your beloved with that person's faults and proclivities and accept those because that's part of the design of that person, that doesn't mean you never say, give, of course you give feedback. Of course you check with the person. You say, do you mind if I give you some feedback on this? You know, I, and then you can say, you know, I'm, I'm bothered by the way you do this or that, or my feelings are hurt, or I feel angry when you say this or that. But if the other person basically says, you know, I really can't change that, or that's the way I am, then you're in the position of being able to say, do I accept that or not? And if you accept it, you continue on the path of love. And that really means accepting a lot of irritating stuff. I, I do find that, um, and it always does, I mean, because other people are irritating. Um, I, I, I don't know if you remember back to what uh, Leonard Cohen said that Roshi said that when people are silent they get along and when they start to talk they fight and you know if you go to silent retreats like I do you know you go in you're in there for 10 days people are in silence you love everybody it's incredible these people that you're with and they you love being around them and so on and then at the end we always have talking circle when people start to talk, I'm like, ugh. You know, I, was, I was loving this person. I was thinking this person was, you know. So the thing is, we're irritating. And we're irritating to each other in all sorts of ways. And if you can accept that, then you recognize it's not personal. It's not personal to you. And as much as possible, see if it's possible to do what at least my mother didn't do and many mothers don't do, which is to allow the other person to do or say or wear or whatever the clothes or the, the things or the interests without saying, what does this mean about me? That is a very big one. Like if he wears a wrinkled shirt, what will people think about me? Well, they probably won't think about you at all. Mostly other people are not thinking about you. And so if you could also know that, everybody's in their little bubble, and so leave it alone. Other people don't confuse you and the person you're with. If the person you're with wants to wear, you know, sort of something that's outrageous or something that looks unfashionable or whatever, that's the prerogative of another adult. It's not a reflection on you. And it's a good practice with adult children too, right? 
Um, and you get used to it after a while because of the stuff they bring home. But um, really, it's a very, very important thing to try to accept. Recognize you're unconsciously motivated by your early emotional habits, just as your beloved is. Those are those psychological complexes. And that you can fall into projection, and projection is our primary defense of our unconsciousness. You and your beloved can and will readily use each other as the target of projections that are painful and destructive. The most destructive patterns of this projection-making factor in love relationships can be discovered and analyzed in effective individual and, and or couples therapy. Sort of skipped into that. If you and your beloved cannot investigate these projections yourselves, if they're too painful, if you feel that your beloved sees you as too, too suffocating, overwhelming, whatever, a person, and you can't sit with that, then take it to therapy to investigate it. Uh, or go into individual therapy and begin to wonder about whether there is something within you that is suffocating and overwhelming. So if the projections and taking them back and talking about them become too painful, take that pain to psychotherapy. Remember the marks of existence that we're all fundamentally broken, limited, and embedded in contexts that we do not control. That was one thing we didn't talk about in the context. So we're all in these contexts where there are all kinds of contingencies that we don't know about. And like in my own life, I did not know that Ed was going to get early onset Alzheimer's. I didn't know that at the age of 54 you could have dementia. I didn't know that by the age of 59 most of your cortex could be destroyed by Alzheimer's. I didn't know any of that, and neither did he. And those things were not our fault, and we knew that at least. So we weren't in a situation where we were blaming anybody, but we were in a situation where there were contingencies that had major effects on us that we had no knowledge of whatsoever. And that really is going on all the time in our lives. There are all sorts of things we don't know ourselves right now. You know, what's going to happen with the weather? What's going to happen in this building? What's going to happen with our families? Uh, but we actually have to allow and accept those contingencies if they emerge in the context of our lives. Um, return to curiosity about yourself and your beloved as often as you can, a fundamental not knowing. If there's one rule of thumb about love, it is return to curiosity. Return to curiosity. Do not think you know. Do not assume that you know exactly what she's going to say. Do not assume that you've had this conversation already. The time has changed. Everything is different. A Nietzsche has occurred. This is not the same conversation. Remember that love is a difficult path, but it will reward you with the feeling of having been seen and known. And so this is the, the real underlying reward of true love, is that you will feel as though you have a home on earth. And I know that because I had that home. And that home was with my friend Ed. And it was always there when he and I had a chance to go through all of our wrangling to get back to our acceptance, deep acceptance of each other. I believe that that sense of being deeply accepted 
is what people look for in a personal relationship with God. They look for a relationship in which their particularity, them as an individual, is acknowledged moment to moment and deeply accepted as they are. And that that kind of acceptance and that kind of witnessing is at the root of this project of true love, if we can do it, and it is doable, and there are skills that are involved, like compassion and mindfulness, curiosity and engagement. When mutual personal love becomes a spiritual practice, as Cynthia Borgio reminds us, it means bearing one's heart with particularity. This is the path of transformational love, and it puts a human face on the transcendent. True love is felt as raw vulnerability with our own needs and desires exposed. Love opposes control of the beloved while strengthening your need and dependence on the relationship for your own foundation. You see into another person so specifically and so deeply that you see through him or her to whatever you take to be the divine source refracted back again through your own self. So that is the spiritual side of true love. And it's possible to practice it. It's possible to also create it in your life with those people who are now in the context of your life. If you recognize and come back to again and again mindfulness, compassion, not knowing, curiosity, engagement, and then remain as much of a whole self as you can in that process. Um, so here's the summary of mindfulness and compassion. Kind, mindfulness is the kind of awareness that combines concentration and equanimity and leads to clarity of perception. I mentioned earlier that the concentration is the straight spine in the posture and the equanimity is the relaxed limbs, the openness. So when you're being mindful, you're able to be a friendly audience no matter what the experience is. You remain open to the experience. And the experience then changes you. And you don't have to change the experience. Um, so mindfulness from a Buddhist perspective, when it's practiced over time, leads to the clarity in our perception that um, this world that we're in is a Buddha world. And that means that everything is complete and perfect. Very different from what I said about the mundane world, which is the world that we experience most of the time. So from a Buddhist perspective, we are living in the midst of a divine source, but it's very, very difficult to perceive it. And it takes a lot of love and compassion over time to wake up to that. So that's really the waking. The waking up in Buddhism is the waking up to the constant presence of awareness and the capacity for love and compassion. Um, compassion is the ability to accompany anguish, suffering, or adversity with accurate empathy and help. The key thing with compassion, uh, if, you're, if your compassion is working, the other person actually lets you know that it is. If you're helping somebody and, they, and they're letting you know, as your adult child might or your partner, this is not helping. Okay, take their word for it. Don't question it. Because 
if you're actually helping, they experience being helped. And so that's a pretty easy rule of thumb. Don't do the help that hurts. Because uh, the help that hurts is not help. And uh, um, so mindfulness and compassion, both are really big and important skills on the path of love. And they will help you tremendously through the disillusionment, through the time where you feel that your partner is an intimate enemy. Uh, and they will help you even after, for example, after my mother died. I began to see her much more compassionately. Now, I just wasn't able to do that when she was alive. And sometimes it's not possible because sometimes somebody in your life hurts you again and again and again. So when you're with them, you're mostly protecting yourself. And you can't really open yourself to any kind of true love. So this last picture, um, I think this is the last thing here. Yep, nope, <laughs> okay. Because um, I want to have some time for question. This is a picture that I use in my TED Talk. It's online uh, under my name. Just look it up under TED, TEDx. It's called uh, Letting Go of Self-Importance is the Key to Happiness. Um, this is actually a replica of an old... Um, Chinese uh, painting from about like in the 5th to the 6th century period of time in China. People used to do landscapes then, painters did, where the figures, the, the little figures on the edge of that cliff, there are two little figures there. This is like just a, a little cartoon almost, replica. But those are the human beings, those two little figures that are standing there by that little fence on the edge of the cliff. And they're looking out into this vast and mysterious environment. Now you can imagine that they're telling stories to each other. They're talking to each other. And maybe they're, they're asking each other what's it all about, what's going on here, or maybe they're talking about themselves. But the Chinese were attempting to get the viewer to see this little huge narrative is so small next to this vast expanse of mystery and beauty and engagement. And you always have the choice, moment to moment to moment. You can go into your little narrative about what you've done wrong or what your partner has done wrong and what is bothering you and the fact that Donald Trump is going to be president and where is the world going and blah, blah, blah. You can go into that. It's very small. Or you can turn your attention to the fact that you do not know what's going on here. Nobody does. We're just floating around on a planet, space. Nobody has found out yet why we're out here, what's going on. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen next. This is very interesting, this stuff. You should never be bored, not for a moment. It's all so interesting and mysterious. And if you're bored or if you're in there, or you feel alienated and depressed and despairing, it's because you're not engaging. If you engaged, you would begin to sense how mysterious all of this is. And then you live with some people, and they're familiar, but they're just as mysterious as this out there thing. You don't know who they are. You don't know where they came from. From a Buddhist perspective, karma goes from lifetime to lifetime. These are beings that are showing up who are essentially somebody that you don't have any idea where they're coming from. You might know with your children, you say, oh, yeah, when you were born, I looked at you, and I knew immediately you're the kind of person to blah, blah, blah. Eh, it's not a very good story. 
You know, it's better to recognize that when you looked at your baby, you had some thoughts and feelings, but they could be really wrong because they were yours and they didn't belong in the environment between you. Over time, we're always changing. It's impermanent. We're embedded in a context we don't understand. That's true for your partner too. That's true for your child too. And so each time you engage, you can engage from the, oh, here you are. Isn't this interesting? Isn't this amazing? Who are you now? Or you can engage from the nah, 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 thing. You have a choice. But I can tell you that the nah, 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 is not as happy. Um, because it's, it's imbued with the self-conscious emotions. And I'm only going to mention these so we have some time for questions. Uh, you have the handout, the self-conscious emotions are the so-called secondary emotions they develop in the human infant between 18 months and two years is the beginning of the self-conscious emotions. That's the beginning of the ego complex. That's when the sense of I, me, mine, I'm in here and the world is out there, comes into being. And those emotions like shame, guilt, envy, pride, self-pity, embarrassment, and jealousy, they are not happy emotions. And if you want to put yourself into those emotions, and if you want to stay in there most of the time, if you feel envious of others' lives, if you feel ashamed of yourself, if you feel guilty about what you think you've done, all of those things are ways of being absorbed in yourself. And they cut back on your sense of mystery. They cut way back on that curiosity and that engagement. So um, I'm going to play... Leonard's song, and then we'll have a few minutes to talk. This is the whole song that I took the title from, the Come Healing song, the title Gather Up Your Brokenness. And, um, in honor of Leonard, we'll listen to the whole thing. And if it-
just stop it. <laughs> now I need to stop it. <laughs> Got it. So that's it. <laughs> Thank you. So we have some time for questions. Yes. So he was saying that he thinks that Cynthia's relationship to Brother Rafe, uh, which has continued, she basically said it continued for a while. I mean, it didn't, it hasn't continued. Certainly when I spoke to her, she felt that most, most of what they had been about, she had already accomplished. But that it continued beyond death. And for you, you said you think it's different from what I'm talking about is true love because it was the combining of their individuation. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. She doesn't say that in, in love and death, but she does have a, a, a dialogue in the conversation with another So I'm, I'm not sure that um, I would say there's a real distinction. Certainly when I spoke, I sat down and talked to her for an hour, we seemed to agree about the whole thing. You know, um, basically her, her position, a couple of things that she said um, really affected me. One is the reciprocity piece of it um, and the witnessing. And uh, she certainly thought that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a relationship like that. Now, other aspects, I don't know if she and I would differ. I haven't had a conversation with her that, you know, looks at what are the differences in our perspective. But I don't particularly see differences. Um, in the present heart, I quote her at length. I sent the, you know, I obviously sent her the manuscript. She sent it back, said it was great. She really enjoyed it. I mean, there wasn't any sort of, here's what the way she was thinking differently. So, you know, that's as much as I know about it. Um, I, 
I would say, you know, our perspectives are a little different because she's Christian and I'm Buddhist. And we, we did talk about death, she and I. And uh, we have a little different perspective. But I think in terms of love, I didn't think that... Uh, the one thing that she said that was very challenging to me that um, I would say I reserve as a possibility of, that she's right, when I said, well, what about parent-child love? She said, that's not love. That's basically narcissism. And, um, you know, it's so imbued with narcissism that it's very hard to climb out of it. But I think it can be love. But I understand also what she's what she meant by that. So that's the one area where I would say I think I quote her in the book saying that, and and then I I say you know I sort of hold open the possibility that parents and children can come to know each other yeah. as adults. Um, so any other other questions? Yes. This isn't a question. I loved your presentation today, partly because you got to real life, very difficult situation, and laid it before us to see what you're talking about, what real life is. I just feel blessed by you. Thank you. I feel totally blessed by what you said Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do. I would say that that's in honor of Ed, though, also, you know, because I would not be speaking like this or about this or about my life or written this book that's so personal. Uh, as a psychoanalyst, <laughs> we don't usually do that. But because Ed went through this uh, tremendous uh, transformation and because he died so well, uh, his death was so good that it was like a completion. I mean, there was really no grief. And so it left me with this feeling that I, that I need to talk about this, and I need to talk about it specifically, as this is the way that it happened. And so I really appreciate your saying that as well. Um, and I do hope people are less afraid in hearing this, particularly less afraid of Alzheimer's. Uh, and um, so thank you. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.